Hello, welcome to Great City. My name is Jade, um, and I'm really thankful I get to open up chapter six with you today. Um, in this chapter, as you heard, we meet a, a man named Gideon, but before we meet him, I want to introduce you to another man who's not so different from Gideon. Uh, he was a 91-year-old man, and this was the news article that was written about him. Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby said. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way, Ruby says. He was very sensitive to always remain in God's will. So what was going on for Walter? Good old Walter. He was a Christian. He was gripped with fear of making any decisions because he didn't want to disappoint God in any way. In Walter's mind, doing nothing was better than doing something and making a mistake. Now, if you're worried that, you know, I'm about to make fun of a poor old deceased man, let me put your heart at ease. This article is from a satirical news site, and so Walter isn't a real guy, and he wasn't a real guy. But my suggestion today is that the, his way of seeing God's will was very real. I think that you and I frequently fall into this trap uh, because we're not sure of what the will of God is for our life. And so we're afraid. We go to God frequently with questions. Do you want me to buy a car? What color should it be? Do you want me to take this job or that job? Should I have quit that job? Should I have moved that house? Have I accidentally found myself living outside the will of God without even realizing it? Remember Ruby said, his fake wife, whenever he was about to take action, <laughs> I mean, they're both fake, so it's not... <laughs> He wasn't just imagining her. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he just didn't want to disappoint God. Does that sound familiar? Are you so afraid of disappointing God by doing something wrong that you've fallen into the trap maybe of disappointing God by doing nothing at all? But how do we know? How can we know what the will of God is? How is that even possible? Well, thankfully, we have, we have the Bible. We have his word. Um, and many faithful Christians across the ages, they've, they've, kind of, they've studied this topic and they've looked at the scriptures. And we've been able to come up with three helpful categories to think about such a great and big thing that's really hard to fathom. Um, let me show them to you. Uh, we, they're called God's will of desire, God's will of decree, and God's will of direction. God's will of desire, decree, and direction. Let me take you through them in that order. When we talk about God's will of desire, also that's also called God's revealed will of desire. We're talking about how God calls us to live. God's commands for our lives. We see God's will of desire across the Bible, and we're called to know it and to be growing in it daily. Here's one example. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a life, a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. God's will of desire is revealed. He reveals it to us through the scriptures about how we ought to live. Notice that it says, it is God's will for us to be sanctified. 
but we still seem to have some sort of agency to reject that instruction and so reject God. So part of God's will of desire is that we live pure lives. And this is the hard part. Both of what I'm about to say is true. Yes, he calls us to live pure lives, but also we are still accountable for our actions and are able to reject God and live impure lives. But if we're able to go against God's will of desire, how can God be in control? How can he be over everything? That's where God's will of decree comes in. In this, we're referring to God's sovereignty. This is also referred, uh, called God's secret will of decree. As Christians, we believe that everything that happens, happens under God's sovereign control and in his sovereign will. Whether it be things we can understand or things that we can't, things across history as well as things in our lives are moving towards the destination that God intends them to. God is God and he is in control of all of history and he will do what he pleases. We can't ignore God's will of decree and we can't get around it. Now, the final category is God's will of direction. And this is probably the trickiest one. As individualism has kind of spread through our cultures and even come into our churches, we've actually changed our language when, with the way that we speak about God's will. Many haven't even noticed that this has happened, uh, which is probably, probably what makes it even more dangerous. Many of us spend our lives waiting for God to reveal this mysterious will of direction. Just like the 91-year-old man, we sit in fear and anxiousness, praying to God to basically reveal the future to us. It's kind of as if he knows we want to know, and he wants us to know too, but he's not going to tell us unless we solve some riddle about whether the open door is his opening of the door, but there's a window that's open too, but the other door is closed, and I'm not supposed to climb through the window, but I'm 34, I'm tired, I can't climb through windows. Like, Don't get me wrong. Does God have your life planned out? Does he know what's going to happen? Does he know where you're going to live? Does he know if you will marry? Does he know if you're going to have kids? Yes, he most definitely does. But does God intend for you to know that plan beforehand, before you make decisions? Very, very rarely. But for some reason, somehow we've come to believe, possibly accidentally through time, that he does. And when our expectations aren't met, we think that God is silent. And so we live in fear. We end up paralyzed and unable to function. In Judges 6, we meet a new judge, Gideon, as he struggles with this very issue. We see him constantly living in fear. Throughout this chapter, time and time again, we see Gideon's fear hold him back. But thank God. Also throughout this chapter, we see God's grace walking alongside him so gently, maybe too gently sometimes, (laughs) strengthening him. So we're going to work through the chapter and together we're going to work through five things that Gideon is afraid of. Um, He's afraid of the enemy. He's afraid of weakness. He's afraid of the angel. He's afraid of people. He's afraid of failure. Don't worry, you don't have to memorize this. I'll kind of give them to you as we go along. Um, But let's jump in. We have a whole chapter to get through. So first, he is afraid of the enemy. We first meet Gideon as he's hiding away in a wine press, threshing wheat. Now, if that doesn't doesn't make any sense to you, don't worry. It didn't make sense to me until Friday. Um, But just imagine Gideon, maybe with a donkey. We're not sure. In the middle of 
probably what looks like an untiled swimming pool. Um, and what they're trying to do is they're trying, they're trying to quietly stomp on wheat um, that they've cut and harvested and put inside the swimming pool so that the enemy, the Midianites, don't hear them. And you actually see his fear come out when the angel of the Lord tells him. So the angel comes and he tells him, the Lord is with you. It just triggers him. So look with me at verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon is frightened of Midian. Gideon is frightened of Midian. And can you blame him? He has been abandoned by God. He's the victim in this story. We need to see verse one though. So the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Okay, so maybe the victim narrative doesn't really work, but maybe he didn't know. So maybe what happened, uh, maybe no one told him that they were doing evil and that's why they were given into the hands of the Lord. Unfortunately, verse seven, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hands of the oppressors. I drove them out before you. I gave them, I gave you a land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So Gideon did know because God sent him a prophet to literally tell him why this is happening with him. They weren't abandoned, quite the contrary. By God's powerful will of decree, he handed them over to the enemy for exactly seven years. And then not only that, notice that he doesn't send a judge immediately, which if you remember from past weeks in the cycle, we would expect the judge to come first. God sends them a prophet first. But why does he do that? Well, the role that the prophets play, um, played frequently in the Old Testament was to warn the people and to call them back to God. So as the Israelites were still doing evil in God's eyes, God is the one that reaches out to them. Remember this every time that you are tempted to differentiate the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. He has always been compassionate and loving and full of grace. Always. Also notice that we've just seen both God's will of decree and God's will of desire at play here. In this case, with regards to God's will of desire, we see that they were being corrupted by idol worship. And so they weren't being sanctified. When we see God's will of desire in the Bible, know that it is always good and holy and is directed to all of God's people. But what is God's will of desire for my life? It's the same thing for them. And it's the same thing for you. It's across all of scripture. It's good for all of his people across all of time and all of culture. God's revealed will of desire is that his people be holy. So that's point one. He feared the enemy because he and the people had not trusted in God's will of decree and had not followed God's will of desire. Next, we're going to, to, to look at two of his fears at the same time. Efficiency. Uh, Gideon is afraid because one, he's weak. And two, he's afraid of the person he's speaking to, the angel. Uh, the angel of the Lord calls Gideon a mighty warrior in verse 12. And then we read this. 
the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. First, Gideon is afraid because he's weak. The angel calls him a mighty warrior and claims that he's supposed to save Israel, but he's from the weakest clan and he's the youngest child. Gideon just doesn't believe the angel of the Lord. And this is when we kind of meet the elephant in the room. Gideon's third fear. Now he becomes afraid of this messenger, this angel of the Lord that he's talking to. From verses 11 to 23, um, Gideon's attitude shifts dramatically towards the person he's talking to. Look what happens in verse 14 again. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. Am I not sending you? Now, there are strong indications here that make us think that this isn't just an angel. It's not just a messenger. Firstly, it doesn't say angel anymore. It says the Lord. And secondly, angels don't command humans or send humans to do things. They communicate God's commands. They are messengers. That's what the word angel means. If the answer to this confusion seems very obvious to you, let me suggest that this is a time to be thankful that we are blessed to live in the age after Jesus' incarnation. My strong hunch here is that we are getting a beautiful glimpse of the Trinity in our passage today. This messenger from God is none other than God the Son, who even at that time before the incarnation, he was working to bring salvation and peace to the people of God. I think Gideon realizes this in verse 22. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. Gideon must have known the warning that God gave Moses in Exodus uh, chapter 33. He says, You cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. So Gideon finally realizes that he was talking to God all along. God called him a mighty warrior and promised him that he could defeat the Midianites. God knew Gideon more than Gideon ever could know himself. And God knew that in the future, um, Gideon was going to be remembered as a mighty warrior. Look with us in the New Testament, Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. So you can just imagine after such a life-changing encounter, you'd expect Gideon to change. You'd expect Gideon to stop being so afraid. Why don't you take a moment now? Think back at your life. Maybe close your eyes. Think about all the times that you can see God's hand blessing and guiding and encouraging you. See his goodness. See how faithful he is but also see how even though God has proved himself time and time again, we seem to continuously fall back into the fear, fall back into weakness time and time again. Gideon, unfortunately, was no different. And this is what takes us to our fourth fear, the fear of the people. 
Now, if you expected him to change, to no longer be afraid, unfortunately, you're going to be disappointed. And the disappointment starts that very night. It doesn't take long. Um, so the same night that he saw the Lord face to face, um, the Lord tells Gideon to go and destroy the altar to Baal. And don't get me wrong, Gideon does it, but he does it in such a Gideon way. Verse 27. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. Kind of. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. First of all, he takes 10 servants. I'm not sure this was an 11-man job, especially if the 11th man was the one that the creator of the universe just called Mighty Warrior. But anyway, then he does it at night because he's afraid of his family and the people of the town. And it tells us that he was afraid in verse 27, but his fear is even more apparent in a worse way in verse 30. The people of the town demanded of Joash, Gideon's dad, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar. They say, bring out your son. Gideon is so afraid of the people that he's hiding in his father's house. So last time uh, he was hiding in an untiled swimming pool, but this time he's somewhere in his father's house while his father faced the mob and he defended the cowering mighty warrior Gideon in the, out the back. All of this should make us wonder, what was the Lord talking about? Why did he call him a mighty warrior in verse 12? Why did, what did the Lord mean when he said, go in the strength you have? This guy's a wimp. He can't even face his own people, let alone go against the enemy and fight them and win. Now, most of the answer to this question comes up in our next two chapters, um, which we'll hear next week from Tim. But for a moment in this chapter, just a glimpse, we get a glimpse of the mighty warrior that Gideon will be. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also into Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali so that they too went up to meet them. In this rare instance, from the beginning of the chapter, God told Gideon to do something very specific, to destroy Baal's altar and build an altar to the true God. Even though Gideon did it in fear and imperfectly, he did do it. He stepped up, he risked his life and he tried to honor God. And just as the enemy started to gather, the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and we finally saw him act like the mighty warrior that we have been expecting. And it's no coincidence that God equipped him to be the man that he needed to be in just the right moment. But I want us to take to think about this for a moment. I want us to think about how Gideon has been feeling this whole time. And I want us to think about whether we can see ourselves in that. Now, I could summarize this whole chapter by saying this. I could say, uh, God raised up Gideon, a, ma- a judge named Gideon, who he promised was going to be a mighty warrior. Gideon was going, would go on to destroy Baal's altars in the community and then raise up an army to fight against the Midians. Everything I said was true. Um, and when you look at the big picture, that's what happened. But Gideon's lived experience was very different. I think that if Gideon was telling his story, this is how he would tell his story. God abandoned us. And then someone told me that I was supposed to save Israel, but I'm weak. I can't do that. It actually turned out that that person was God, but I wasn't sure. So I tested him. 
Turns out it was, so I nearly died. And then he told me to destroy Baal's altar. I was scared, so I did it at night, and I took 10 of my servants. They found out it was me and tried to kill me, but my father protected me. And then just as all of the nations around us gathered to fight, I felt the power of God in me to raise up an army and prepare for battle. Now, why am I taking the time to kind of go through that? I'm taking the time to do that because I, my hunch is that we often think this way. My hunch is that most of us struggle with trusting God because we don't know what trusting God actually means. We mostly talk in vague, general terms that end up meaning nothing when life gets hard, when things aren't going our way, when death or sickness is at our door. Gideon's lived experience was so hard. Let's use Gideon's final fear to help us get our heads around uh, and get more clarity on what trusting God actually means. Gideon is afraid of failure. Look at me. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I, then I will know you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose up early the next day. He squeezed the fleece, wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. So fleece is like a piece of material, let's say, and dew is just water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. God is so patient. On the surface of it, it looks like Gideon is using this test to find out what God's will for his life is. But is that really what was happening? Look again. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, then the fleece thing, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. What is Gideon unsure about? Is he unsure about what God has promised? Twice he tells us, he proves to himself, to us, sorry, that he knows exactly that God has promised that God will save Israel using Gideon's hand. And then even after Gideon, God does the weird thing with the water and the fleece, Gideon asks for it again, just the opposite way. Even though Gideon has the promises of God, he still lives in fear and anxiety because he doesn't actually trust them. He is testing whether he can trust God to do what God has promised. He knows exactly what God has promised. As you have said, as you have promised. But Gideon has forgotten all about God's will of decree and his desire. And all he can focus on is the future that he doesn't know. He has let his fear of the future take over and he needs constant reminders that God is faithful. So what does trusting God actually mean? It means three things. That we enjoy the freedom of trusting in God's will of decree. His sovereignty over all time and space. Two, that we obediently follow God's will of desire. How he calls us to live in holiness. 
And three, it means that we focus on one and two. It frees us from the anxiety of not knowing God's will of direction because we can look back and we can see how faithful God is and we can see his grace through our whole lives. And that's the pattern that we see in the scriptures of what it looks like to trust God. There's a guy named Kevin DeYoung. Um, He wrote a book called Just Do Something, a liberating approach to find God's will. And honestly, I can't encourage you enough to read this book. I really want you to read this book so much that uh, to help you get your hands on a copy uh, under the resources tab in our website, you can kind of, there's a form, fill it out. I'll get in touch with you and I'll get you a book. Um, We don't get any money from it. This is just, I really just want you to read this book. Now that I said it out loud, it sounds like I'm marketing for him. Um, But at one point in the book, listen to what he says. When it comes to most of our daily decisions, and even a lot of life's big decisions, God expects and encourages us to make choices, confident that he's already determined how to fit our choices into his sovereign will. Passivity is a plague among Christians. And it's not that we just don't, we, it's not just that we don't do anything. It's that we feel spiritual for not doing anything. Now you may be thinking, that all sounds good, Jade. But how does this actually play out? Helpfully, um, in the book as well, Kevin uh, DeYoung outlines four steps to think through as you try and make a decision. And I thought this was so helpful, so let's go go through them. Step one, search the scriptures. So let's say we were trying to find a job. Is the job you're considering a righteous job? Something that you can glorify God through as you faithfully fulfill your role? Many jobs are teacher, uh, clerk at the shop, whatever it is, accountants, even lawyers. (laughs) Now, if if it's not, that's a non-negotiable in the scriptures. So if the answer is no, that's a big deal. And you have to think about that. But if it is a righteous job, there are other principles also to be considering through the scriptures. Is it enough money to provide for your family? Now, the answer to that might not decide whether you do it or not, but it's something to consider. If you have to move, is there a church there that you can commit to and be growing in? So many times have we, uh, both here at this church and many other churches, too many times have I seen people from church take a job before considering what church they're going to go to when they move to a different area. God's will of desire is that we are to be sanctified. And so that should be a deal breaker. Find the church. (laughs) Step two. Get wise counsel. Speak to Christians that you trust and hear what they have to say. Give them the opportunity to speak into your life. We're not just individuals in a church building. In Christ, we are one body and he will use that body to counsel us. Step three is to pray. Ask God to give you wisdom and to give you insight into the job and the factors that are at play. Ask God to provide you with wise counsel. Ask God to not let your heart be motivated by the pursuit of money or status or something else. Ask God for the things that he has revealed to you in the scriptures that he desires for you. And we know that what he desires is your sanctification. And step four, this this might be a shock. Make a decision. With all of that in mind, just do something. 
Don't over-spiritualize a decision. Don't expect a voice from heaven to tell you to take that accounting job or to buy a blue car. Don't ask God to wet a piece of cloth. Trusting in God's sovereignty, being sanctified by God, take a step with the information you have, knowing that he has a direction for your life. Gideon didn't need to be told the specifics of what he should have done. He should have known to break the altar in his father's house. It wasn't even in some, he was sleeping next to it. Gideon had the scriptures and did nothing. God sent him a prophet and he still did nothing. Then even the pre-incarnate Jesus comes to him and still he is scared to do anything. That's not the life he was called to live. That's not how we are called to live. God was gracious with Gideon, but even more so with us. Jesus didn't just come for a visit. He came and he died and he was buried and he rose. And with all of that, he did what the judge Gideon couldn't do. He did what you and me can't do. In verse 23, the Lord said to Gideon, peace, don't be afraid. The Lord says this again in the New Testament to his disciples and through them to us and through them to you this morning. Look at John 14. Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. We can live in peace, not because things are going our way or because we know every single way God is going to direct our lives. We can live in peace because Jesus has given us peace. He has promised us peace that overcomes the world's chaos. And it's not in the absence of war that we find peace. It's in the presence of Jesus. Our hearts can rest as we trust in God's will of decree and as we follow in God's will of desire. Kevin DeYoung ends his book this way. He says, live for God. Obey the scriptures. Think of others before yourself. Be holy. Love Jesus. And as you do these things, do whatever else you like. With whomever you like, wherever you like, and you'll be walking in the will of God. Live for God. Obey the scriptures. Think of others before yourself. Be holy. Love Jesus. And then go on. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that we can trust in your will, that it is good and that you are a good God. Father, help us to not always be looking for the fu- to the future. Help us to trust and to rest in your will of decree and help us to constantly be running after, be yearning for your will of desire, which is for our sanctification. Help us, Father, to look more like your son, Jesus, every single day. Father, as a church, help us to love and care for one another. Help us to be pushing each other on, spurring each other on in love and good deeds. And we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.